All right, so we come into a new chapter. Uh, true discipleship. Somebody's calling me. Jeremy, you go take that for real. It's Tommy. See if anything's wrong. <laughs> hey, Tommy. This is Jeremy. Uh, and to be honest with you, uh, I have always stopped this book before I got to this chapter because my brain was so overloaded. I was just like, I've had enough for now, and I put the book down. And so every time that I have picked this book up, which has been like three or four times, I read to this chapter, I stop, I'm done, my brain's overloaded. So y'all are forcing me to continue on with this chapter. Um, and so that being said, we'll be in it several weeks uh, because I want everything okay. Well, I couldn't hear. He was cutting out. He lost signal. Okay. Well, if he calls again, there you go. Um. I, ran, I printed off the chapter for you. I know it's difficult to read. Uh, there may be some words that you're not as familiar with, but you can do what I always do. He uses a word and I Google it, see what the definition is, and go back and read the sentence again. But this is on something that we talk about a great deal, uh, but he communicates it so well that I just decided to let you read his words and so if you do read ahead in this, you'll be, well, at least what I say is going to make a lot more sense to you if you spend a little time. It's a really short chapter. But basically, the gist of it is he wants to make sure that we understand that we're saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone, right? Faith generates a new way of living, right? Uh, and so, again, I can't even communicate that well, but he communicates it in a very good way. So that being said, we'll spend some time in like John chapter 8. Uh, I don't think we'll get there tonight, but there's a lot that goes on in John chapter 8 uh, where you have this statement that these are people who have believed, sadly enough, in a perfect tense. They have believed in the Lord Jesus, Right? But Jesus challenges them with the word, and by the time you get to the end of John 8, they pick up rocks and they try to kill Jesus. So you literally have, quote-unquote, believers who are at the same time trying to take Jesus' life. So we understand they're not genuine believers. And that's what makes the Gospel of John so difficult, because you have spurious faith, and spurious means not really. Okay? So you have a lot of people in the Gospel of John who have not real faith, and so you study the Gospel of John to help people, to help understand people who have a profession of faith with your mouth, but not with their life. That's why John's Gospel is so good. Everything all right with y'all? All right. All right. So we'll spend some time with John. We'll spend some time in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you've ever heard the phrase carnal Christians, uh, that was really big when I was young in youth ministry. First uh, Corinthians deals with the I guess you would call the ungodly Christian uh, who seems to not follow Christ at all. I know. It seems like an oxymoron. It's just not possible. But once you read through 1 Corinthians, where I'm praying that that may be, that may be where we go after Romans. We may go to 1 Corinthians because it's been like, I don't know, eight, seven years since we were in 1 Corinthians. The whole church looks different, so it might be a good time to go back to 1 Corinthians. But you see how Paul deals with people who have a profession with their mouth but not their life. 
and he's very, very challenging in 1 Corinthians. So anyway, so this is what this chapter is about. He talks about true discipleship, and for him, Christianity and discipleship, that's the same thing. Now, I will tell you, if you grew up like me on Sand Mountain in church, you're wrong about what you think about this. Because I've been taught sitting in Sunday school, you may be a believer, but that does not mean you're a disciple. That's what I was taught. You get saved, and once you mature, then you can become a disciple by following Christ. That's what I was taught. That's not true. Okay? So he makes the argument from the text, if you're a follower of Christ, you're a disciple of Christ. Christianity is discipleship. Following Jesus turns out to be following Jesus. So it makes little sense to call yourself a follower if you're not following. It's just foolish. Okay? There are no categories, so to speak. And so the whole chapter is about this issue. So there are two extremes, and you'll find out almost always there are two extremes. Because if God's way is the road, you'll always know there's a ditch on both sides of the road, right? And if you overcorrect, you're going to get it in the ditch on one side of the road. So pretty much any theological issue that you're dealing with, there's two most prominent ways to get it wrong almost every time I've found. In concerning salvation or Christianity, there's two ways to get this wrong. And so he breaks it down into a workless faith, which he technically calls gospel reductionism. We call it easy believism. And he spends more time on easy believism. And this is one of the reasons that I gave you the chapter because I've rant and raved about easy believism for the last nine and a half years. Okay? So we'll just walk, some the pas- walk through some passages so you can see it in the text. But we all know what this means. It's just somebody who did something with their mouth one day in a confession, but you look at their life and you see no light, no life, no fruit, those sort of things. Okay? And then he spends some time with something we equally need to be concerned about, especially in regard to this church, and it's a faith plus works. We've got to really be careful that we don't have such high expectations of new believers so as to discount their conversion. Does that make sense? We've got to be careful. Uh, babies are born. They have all the signs of life, but they're not adults. We don't expect them to act like adults. We don't expect them to eat like adults, right? They're babies. And when we come to faith in Christ, we are babies in Christ. But we expect babies to grow. And if babies don't grow, we go to the doctor because something's wrong, right? Same way with our Christianity. Once we're converted, there is an expectation, a biblical expectation that there will be growth. And if there's not growth, we have to go back and look and see what happened at conversion because maybe it was illegitimate. Maybe there was a quote-unquote stillbirth and not a real birth. It makes sense if you'll spend some time thinking through this. So I'm afraid we can make the mistake in our cynicism with easy believism and have this expectation if someone's converted, they'll act like a mature Christian. They're not going to. They're simply not going to. They have to grow, right? And so we also need to be careful. Listen, you're saved by grace. 
and you're sanctified or made mature by grace. You're saved by grace and you're made more like Christ by grace. Okay? But our faith still works. Okay? All right, so let's talk about a faithless or a workless faith. I call it a faithless faith. Easy believism. And he's got this statement in here, let me begin by revealing the exegetical and theological errors that characterize the first of these extremes. That's, that's Zimmick's statement. And I put that down up here so you can see where you go every time you run into something you need to understand. In other words, what he's saying is, let's go to the text. Let me begin by going to the text. If you take on the issue of easy believism, and I've been a part of this for so many years, and we'll look at Matthew 28 in just a second. I don't care, and how many times do I say this to you guys? I do not care what you believe. That makes no difference to me. We always go to the text. And if you don't allow the text to change your mind, huh, what are we going to do then? Right? So it does not matter. This is what we always do. We just go to the text to help us understand it better. All right, Matthew 28. You may... You can look at it up here. It may help you to turn to it in your, in your own Bibles and look at it. Either way, let me read it to you. Matthew 28, 18 through 90. 18 through 20. Uh, Great Commission. These are Jesus' words to the church to help us understand what we are supposed to be about. Matthew 28. Jesus came up, spoke to them, saying... All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe or keep all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's say... That's the first time you've ever heard that in your entire life. And you're going to read this as if you're going to have to do this tomorrow. And somebody asks you the question, now what was it he said we were supposed to do? Now just looking at that, what would be your short answer? You're supposed to make what? Brandy? Disciples. That's really not hard. First time you've ever seen this? Your boss told you, Monday morning, got a new job for you. I want you to be about this business. Your buddy wasn't there. You get to work. He gets in the truck with you. What did he say we were supposed to do today? And your response can only be, boss said, make disciples. Now, you know what his next question is going to be. How are we supposed to do that? Oh, that's covered here too. But when we look at the pursuit of the church in the last, I don't know, several generations, has it been to make disciples? Or did we do something else? We didn't make disciples. Yes. 
So w- w- what have we done? I mean, it wasn't hard. It wasn't confusing. If you needed to know, there's two verbs in here. Baptizing, teaching, in a present tense, meaning this is the habit. There's two things to do. Baptize, teach. This is what we're supposed to make. And He's going to be with us even to the end of the age. And we just simply have not done that. We've gone, we've gone door to door. Uh, we've handed out tracts. We've had, uh, what do you call them? Not conferences, but... Retreats. We've had retreats. That wasn't what I was thinking about. But revivals and... Crusades. Crusades. That's kind of the word I was getting at. Crusades. We've had all this stuff to accomplish something different than what we were told to do. So if you wonder why the church is in the shape that she's in, it's because the church ignored the command to begin with. Now, I tell you, I really wrestle with the door-to-door thing. Uh, Zemeck makes this statement. Let me turn here. He certainly did not mean that the original core of his followers were to go out and go out and enlist people who make lip service professions to a watered down gospel. That's not the church. Yeah. It's difficult. It's difficult for me to think about because you do rejoice when your child comes to you and says, I want, I want Jesus in my heart. That, that's going to be like the most exciting day of your life. I promise you that. And I do want you to get excited about that. But we were not called to make converts. We were not called to get confessions. We were called to make disciples. And certainly it has to begin somewhere at some point in time, someday, there has to be the realization of sin and their Savior and to make that turn, Right? But our work is just beginning. And it takes an entire lifetime. It's a pursuit of an entire lifetime to do this very thing. So, we messed up from the beginning. And so if you look at the church, and it's filled with people who say, well, I believe the reason that you have that is because you never made a disciple. A disciple never says, I believe. A disciple says, it says. And it is that book. Because a follower follows. A disciple learns from his teacher. He understands what his teacher says. And that's what he does. So just by the fact that we say, well, we believe or I believe, means that we have not been made into followers of Christ. Because we would be telling you very clearly what Jesus says. Right. So you get into this passage and let me see if you can get to this thought. This is one of the thoughts that I had as I was working through this. Uh, By the way, observe, I put this in here, is actually translated for the word keep. It's in a present tense. So we're supposed to teach them to keep on keeping all that I commanded you. So in the process of making the disciple, Jesus says, I want you to teach them to continuously keep as a pattern of their life everything that I taught you. 
Now, what does this imply? This is kind of a hard question. And once I give you the answer, you may be like, what are you talking about? What does this imply about the Word of God? I want you to teach them to hold fast, to keep, to obey, to observe everything that I've taught you. What does that imply about the Scriptures? Stands written. Okay, there's one thing. If I had my marker board, I'd put it stands written. Keep. There has to, you have to understand it, right? Keep going. There's a lot of things here. I, I had a, I got a lot of bullet points. That the whole word is authoritative. Okay, all, yeah, there you go. It's all authoritative. I just want you to process this thought and connect some dots. What else could be said? It, it's supposed to shape who we are. There's something new in your life that radically changes who you are. It's a new way of thinking. What else? Y'all always think bigger than me. It implies it can be taught. That's one simple thing. It can actually be taught if Jesus said, teach them. Right? Something else that it implies, simply, it can be understood. Jesus didn't command us to do something that's impossible. It can be taught and it can be understood. There is the expectation of understanding. Now, if there's the expectation of understanding, how many different meanings could it possibly have? Thank you. <laughs> now, think about this. Think about this. Jesus said, teach it all. You can be taught. It can be understood. If it can be taught, it can be understood. It can only mean one thing. So what in the world are we doing arguing about everything? The reason we're arguing about everything is because we're not disciples. The reasons that you have all these denominations and all these discussions and all these disagreements is because nobody is a disciple. Because if you can teach it and you can understand it, it must mean but one thing to everybody. But rather than paying attention to what Jesus has commanded us, we'd rather hold on to what we believe. And it's absolute foolishness, right? I mean, you think about this from a work perspective. Chris probably teaches a lot of 18, 19 year old boys that hops in that truck for the first time how to do. And it's his responsibility to teach them how to do. And it's his expectation that they're going to do the very thing that, that Chris teaches them how to do. That applies to every single job, right? So when you go back and you understand our calling that as the church, that, that should radically change everything. We should still rejoice when somebody walks an aisle, somebody confesses their sin, that's still a tremendous rejoicing, right? But there also needs to be that realization that the first day of work has just begun. 
And as long as they're a part of this church or whatever, as long as they're a part of your life, you're going to pour into them the truth of what you've learned from the Scriptures. That's what we've been called to do. I wonder how our perspective would change. And this is the part that I struggle with. Let's say I preach the gospel Sunday. And let's say for your kids want to repent and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There would be absolute joy without question. But shouldn't there be other things going on in our heart rather than calling somebody and saying, hey, we had four to get saved Sunday. That's the part that I struggle with because I understand that we've been called to make four disciples as of Sunday. And they made the turn. Because if you call and say, hey, we got four, got saved Sunday, it's like you quit. It's like you quit on it. Like we're done. Like, I've done what we're supposed to do. You weren't even supposed to do that. The Spirit of God does that. He's the one that makes the converts, right? We just don't think about this right. And if I could fix it, I could fix it. But if you'll meditate on that long enough, I think you'll gain a tremendously different understanding, right? By the way, make disciples is an aorist tense. It's not the one-time single effective action. It's just the action. Jesus is just like, this is what I want you to do, period. Make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them, certainly. They hear the gospel. They understand who they are in Christ. But Baptists, you know, let me just make somebody else mad that might hear this. We, We have conversions and then later on, you know, we get to the baptizing. Well, in the text, when you were converted, you were baptized. It wasn't the baptism that converted you, but that was your profession of faith. You were baptized. And then actively teaching them to observe, keep on keeping everything that I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. That's a passage you ought to have memorized, but more importantly, that's a passage you ought to find yourself meditating on often. Because, you know, This is why Tyler and Wallace are in Thailand. It's not so Tyler can hold a crusade, present the gospel, and ask people to lift their hands. It's in order that Tyler might go over there and give his life for the making of disciples, even if it's one. Even if it's one. And if he just sees one come to faith and he spends an entire lifetime teaching him the scriptures, that's a job well done all day long. Because we measure things by numbers, there is no measurement there. You get off at 5 o'clock and you go see your boss on Monday after spending all day. This is his question. Did you make disciples? That's the only question. It can't be how many. Because if it's how many, it couldn't be in the aorist tense because that's just the action that you're going to spend all day on every day. Right? All right, so we fell for this and we quit, easy believism, because we ignored the Word of God when He told us to do this. Got to change. 
All right, let's go a little bit further uh, in regard to easy believism. So go to Luke chapter 8. And I, I totally just gave you this, a few pages out of that chapter for you to read on your own. I don't think I'll ever address it. Anyway, go to Luke chapter 8. So this isn't going to be on the test? That's not going to be on the test. I just set you up. Just like my kids always say, they said it wasn't going to be on the test. It is. All right, I know you're super familiar with this. Uh, let's pick up verse 1. Let me get that and then we'll drop down to verse 4. Luke 8, verse 1. Soon after Jesus began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. So what is Jesus doing? Proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. Okay? We would translate this, he's holding a crusade from city to city, preaching the gospel. Okay? Now let's see what he does. All right? Now look at verse 4. Large crowd was coming together. Those from various cities were journeying to him. He spoke by way of a parable. The sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell by the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew, it withered away because it had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns. The thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Other seed fell into the good soil, grew up, produced a crop a hundred times as great. And as he said these things, he would call out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, pay attention to what's going on. Verse 10, or verse 9 rather. His disciples began questioning him as to what this parable meant. And so he said, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it's in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now here's the parable. Verse 11, the seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard, then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky soil are those when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who've heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with the worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. But notice the last. The seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart. And what do they do to the word, the next four words? And hold it fast. And in holding to the word fast continually, they bear fruit with perseverance. Now, it's interesting in that parable that Jesus wasn't talking about making converts. Jesus wasn't talk about, talking about gaining professions of faith. Jesus was likening converts to those people who bear fruit. And those who bear fruit, what do they do with the Word of God? They hold it. And there was four people in there, right? There's four people in the parable and all four people hear the word and all four people have a different response to the word of God. 
There's some who don't hear at all. There's some who receive it initially, but in a time of testing, they fall away. You got the third guy that leaves us forever in confusion because the worries of life choke him out. He never bears fruit. And you're like, what do you do with that guy? Well, you get to wrestle with that question for the rest of your life. But I always answer it with this. Who in the world wants to be that guy? Who wants to be the fruit tree who never bears fruit? I love cherry trees. What, Rainier? Is that the kind we had? We had Rainier cherry trees in Washington. You know, in Washington, it rains nine months out of the year, every day. And the weather's cooler. And those cherry trees were the most ridiculously fruitful trees I've ever seen in my life. Audrey and I would go and climb a ladder and sit there with buckets, but no cherries would make it to the bucket because we'd literally just sit there and pop them in our mouth. So when we started planting Christmas trees, they had Rainier cherry trees for sale. So I asked them, I said, is there any chance in our zone, northeast Alabama, we could have cherry, Rainier cherry trees? She said, not a chance. She said, the tree will live, it'll never produce fruit. She said, you can make the tree live, but it'll never bear fruit. Too much hot weather, too much dry, won't happen. I said, well, I'm not going to pay for them. Who in the world would want to be the third guy? I'm fruit tree, but I've never bore fruit. So why even talk about that guy? The fourth guy is who everybody wants to be, and that's the one that receives this recognition from the Lord, and that's the guy who not only hears the word initially, the preaching of the gospel, but he spends the rest of his life holding to the word of God and God says, that's the guy that brings forth fruit. We never question that guy because we see the fruit of our Savior in the life of that guy. Now, if I ask you about those four guys, which of those four guys is a disciple? There's one. And which one is Jesus commanding us to produce? The fourth guy. Which ones have we produced? <laughs> first three. <laughs> literally, literally, the first three. Now, I know I'm being a little bit zealous here. I know some fours. I think we've got a church full of fours, and I'm not just saying that. I guess every preacher would say that when they miss Burma. But I've got evidence from your life because I see that some of the things that you're doing in your life, right? But I just want you to understand Jesus is doing this very thing. He's preaching the gospel and he calls time out. He tells them a parable and he doesn't point to conversions. He doesn't say, well, down in Bethsaida today, I preached the kingdom of God and I had 362 people make a profession of faith. He did not say that. He's concerned with followers and disciples. He says, let me tell you a parable about four guys. Now that last guy, that's where he puts all of his emphasis, right? So, you know, that should challenge us in two ways. Number one, you have to ask the question, am I a fruit-bearing tree? Because if you're not, you need to be concerned. Be gracious to yourself. It takes a long time to bear fruit, doesn't it, Miss Burma? You plant a little old seedling of a tree and I'm going to wait on Rainier cherries because I've moved up, you know, up north of Kentucky because I can have cherry trees up there. And I plant a little seedling that's about a year old. You know, I'm not expecting fruit for a long time. So be gracious to yourself. 
but at the same time examine your life and see if there's fruit personally. But secondly, you're called to make fruit-bearing trees. And you got to prune those things, you got to weed those things, you got to fertilize those things, you got to spray those things. And it takes a lifetime of tender, loving care to get fruit out of these trees. And it takes a lifetime for you to get fruit out of these kids. And it takes a lifetime to get fruit out of a church as a pastor or as an elder. You got to keep that in mind. Uh, Guthrie, this is one of his quotes. Believing is equated to receiving the word in a permanent, not simply temporary way. Since the parable reflects the various responses to Jesus' ministry, the vital function of faith is vividly seen and the good soul hearers show their faith by hearing and holding fast to the word and working it out in practice. That's not easy believism, that's genuine faith. That was the point of the parable. Who are the converts? Who are the followers? The ones holding fast to the word and working it out in their life. I go on to the role of commitment, but I'll quit there. I don't want to overload our brains. Any any questions?